Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The so-called Tory Slee scandal over MPs' second jobs entered its second week, with Boris Johnson being forced to insist that the UK is still a robust democracy. I genuinely believe that uh, the UK is not remotely a uh, corrupt uh, country, nor do I believe that our institutions are, are corrupt, and, and I, I think it's very, very important to, to say that. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be examining this big row about outside interests for British MPs, which you heard Boris Johnson refer to at the top. Is it acceptable still to be earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year on top of parliamentary work? And do voters care? Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley will analyse, along with Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. And later, we'll be looking at the very odd case of the 92 hereditary peers in the House of Lords, the last vestiges of aristocracy in our politics. How do they still exist and will their time ever come to an end? Political editor George Parker will take us into this slightly mad and wonderful world, along with special guest Dr. Catherine Haddon from the Institute for Government Think Tank. Well, with much discuss, we're going to go straight into our main topic. First Owen Patterson, now Sir Geoffrey Cox. The troubling headlines around the conduct of some Conservative MPs has continued. There's been much focus on the former Attorney General, who earned almost a million pounds from legal work last year, which was handily conducted 4,000 miles away on the British Virgin Islands, while most of the country was still in lockdown. There were also questions about whether Sir Geoffrey had broken rules by conducting legal work in his Westminster office. Despite attempting to upend the whole standard system to protect Owen Patterson last week, the Prime Minister argued that those who broke the rules should be punished. I think what you've got is uh, cases where, it's, as, where uh, sadly, uh, MPs have broken the rules in the past, may be guilty of breaking the rules today. Uh, what I want to see is uh, them uh, facing uh, appropriate sanctions. And in turn, Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, accused Boris Johnson and his party of corrupting democracy. When I see the reputation of our democracy and our country trashed by this Prime Minister, that makes me angry. Successive politicians and Prime Ministers over the years have tried to build up. Standards have always gone up. Well, Laura Hughes, welcome back to the podcast. As you can hear from those clips, everyone has very strong feelings and emotions about this particular topic. Let's talk about the case of Sir Geoffrey Cox. And our listeners who will be aware of him will know his role during the Brexit years, where I think he was known as Mufasa, due to his booming baritone voice and his eloquent use of things from Milton to the Rolling Stones and being a very much a symbol of Theresa May's efforts to try and get her Brexit deal through. And after he was sacked by Boris Johnson in February 2020, he went back off to the back benches and back off to his legal career and, as we learned this week, earned quite a lot of money. Yeah, he was all over everything for a while in terms of the news and then he seemed to disappear and now we know why and where he was. I think the most serious point to this is that actually his work in the BVI 
didn't break and doesn't break any rules, which I think says something in itself. The really serious allegation at play here is that he used his House of Commons office for this legal work. And that is a breach of the MP's code of conduct. So Labour's called for Catherine Stone, who we're hearing a lot about at the moment. She's the Independent Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. And she will now have to assess whether or not the use of his office was in fact a breach of the MP's code of conduct. It looks on the surface as if it was, as the code is really quite clear that any facilities that MPs are using, which are paid for by us, the taxpayer, are only really there to support an MP in their parliamentary duties. And clearly, this is a second job. It's something he does on the side. And cabinet ministers out doing the media rounds this week have been quite clear that really MPs should not be using public resources to you know, make any sort of personal or financial gain for themselves. Jeffrey Cox, I should add, says he does not believe that he has broken the rules in any way, but he will accept the judgment of the commissioner. So, Robert Shrimsley, the thing with this is that, as Laura said, there is this technical point about whether he used his office and there was some Zoom footage that suggested he had done that. And one would assume if that's the case, he would get a slap on the wrists from the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner there because we don't know how many instances it wasn't necessary to the same scale of Owen Patterson. But on this issue of how much time and money he spent on his outside parliamentary duties, it sort of feels as if the rules we've had at the moment are, yes, you can have outside interests, but don't take the piss out of this. And I think most people would look at what Geoffrey Cox and think it probably breaks that general sense of actually, are you devoting enough time to your being an MP or are you really a barrister with being an MP on the side? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Both you and Laura rather hit the nail on the head on this issue. When you look at most of the sort of scandals that have hit MPs in the last few decades, one of one of the unifying features is that they're doing things that aren't against the rules. It's that the rules have not kept pace with society. The MPs' expenses, you know, although there were a few prosecutions, most of them were using the rules to the letter rather than the spirit. The cash for questions affair, again, that wasn't illegal at the time it happened. And what we're seeing now is, is I think, a new front opening on the behaviour of MPs who are not breaking the rules in having second jobs as long as they don't engage in paid advocacy and are declaring them properly. But people look at this and saying, well, hang on a minute here. You know, we might feel okay about a little bit of work on the side, but this is clearly a hell of a lot more than can be compatible with your duties as our local MP. Um, And one of the reasons it's so dangerous for Boris Johnson is that he has reopened a can of worms about what people think it is acceptable for MPs to do. And the reason this is going to be such a painful period for the Conservatives and for him is because it is probably going to lead to new rules on what MPs might be allowed to do and what extra income they're allowed to derive. Well, it was one minister who remarked to me this week that uh, the Owen Patterson thing was a bit of a molehill and he's decided to solve this by putting a hydrogen bomb and exploding it beneath Westminster. Because as you said, Robert, this whole question is very problematic. And Lord Evans, who's the former head of MI5 and the chair of the Standards on Public Life Committee, has warned that MPs should not be doing things that get in the way of their primary jobs. Nothing that an MP does should get in the way of their ability to work in support of their constituents. So the amount of work that they do, the sort of work needs to be judged against that. If somebody is spending a huge amount of their time on a second job, then they can't be maintaining the support for their constituents. 
Now, Laura, when you listen to that, it does seem as if Jeffrey Cox and some other MPs, I think Andrew Mitchell, the former International Trade Secretary, was a, um, said that had several outside interests, again, earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. The question is, where does this go now? And we've had gone back to the age-old debate about should MPs have second jobs or not? And Boris Johnson has defended the principle of that. But I think there seems to be a consensus forming in both parties that consultancy roles where people are paid to work for private companies with particular interest, they are likely to be banned. But it doesn't feel as if we're going to head straight into no outside interest at this moment, even though Labour could potentially look at that for its next manifesto. I mean, Labour's position on this has sort of been quite firm for a while. And they've said that most second jobs should be banned with the obvious sort of common sense exceptions where an MP is a doctor or a nurse or a care worker and you need to do a certain number of hours to hold on to your license. I think the public would accept that is reasonable and that is good work. Of course, where this gets uncomfortable really is that the situation for every MP is actually quite different. If you're a Tory, a former minister with a certain set of skills and you represent a constituency that doesn't have that much casework, is pretty affluent, pretty comfortable, you might indeed have the time to take on extra work. And I think a lot of them feel that if they were doing a job in the real world, they could be earning a lot more money and that they're not paid enough as an MP. If you're an MP in a, in a city seat and you have really hard issues coming to you every day from constituents, you just do not have the time to, to take on this, this other work. The, the really problematic jobs are clearly these consultancy jobs, these advisory jobs. And they're problematic when we see evidence of these companies that former ministers and MPs are advising, seeking to benefit from that relationship, for example, by being awarded contracts from the government. That's where we get into this issue of paid advocacy and that's where Owen Patterson got in trouble because he was found to have effectively lobbied on behalf of companies that were paying him and gave those companies access to ministers that other companies just don't have. So that, that That's the, the crux of it. I think that is a very different story to an MP working as a nurse during the pandemic. I, I really don't think the public will have a problem with that. It's incredibly grey though. And so I think this is now a question as to whether or not those looking at this decide, actually, it just needs to be black and white now. Second jobs with the obvious common sense exceptions should be banned. So I tried to have a bash with this, Robert, in my notebook column this week. And I actually started off thinking, well, the idea of having second jobs is generally a good thing. Because as you said, if Law said, if you're a former minister or if you represent a safe constituency, you do bring good things to the House of Commons. Yet it probably is not quite a full-time job. But the more you dig into this issue, the more complicated it gets. And I sort of do verge towards that point that maybe it is easier just to have it in a black and white situation. And two of the ideas that I prefer is either one, that you pay MPs more money comparable to say a head teacher of a major school or senior civil servants which I think most people would agree are roles similar to being a member of parliament and um, she'd be talking sort of over a hundred thousand pounds there but you really ban nearly everything except 
professions where you need to keep it going for professional qualification or public service, or two, you put some kind of monetary cap or hours cap on how much you can work there. So I've been out and about in Ashfield in the East Midlands this week. And as with all these things in politics, the majority of people I spoke to were not really aware of this story. They were getting on with their lives. And in fact, most people were excited about the new leisure centre that's being built through the town's levelling up fund. They're getting a £15 million leisure centre, £63 million vested into the town. But those who did know about the story were really angry about this. And it does seem that when you look at the sums of money involved and that general sense of fair play. So we know this is being put out to Chris Bryan's committee on parliamentary standards. They're going to come up with some kind of solution. Where do you think the balance should be struck? I take the point that you you picked up in Asheville that people are not as agitated about this as sometimes the media gets, but it doesn't mean that we're wrong not to be agitated. It doesn't mean we're wrong mm. to be agitated about it. And I also think that part of the problem is that the public tends to think whoever is in power falls prey to this, and so they assume all politicians are the same. But I do think the issue of second jobs is a very complicated one because it slightly goes to the issue of what you think MPs are for. I mean, you liken them to a senior civil servant, but they have none of the managerial um, responsibilities that a senior civil servant has, for example. And when we say they shouldn't have second jobs, well, lots of MPs have second jobs when they become ministers because they have full-time jobs run at the head of a government department, which you would have thought significantly more taxing than any outside work they do with, with a second role. So it depends what you want your MP to be. If you want them to be sort of a souped up local councillor taking on all, all local issues all the time, then yes, it's a full time job. If you think it's a bit more of, an, of a mouthpiece sitting, scrutinising the legislature, that kind of thing, then maybe there's a bit of room. But I think where we're heading is very clear that we, we should bear in mind, however, that anything that ha- any change that's made has to be voted through by a majority of MPs. So we can't take it for granted. But I think the outside political consultancies look very, very doomed to me. I, I think sooner or later they're going to go because even when it's not paid advocacy, it's access that the companies get for this. You know, you don't pay Owen Patterson £100,000 for his company. You pay because you think he's going to get you a commercial advantage one way or another. I think those are in very great danger. My own instinct is that at the moment there won't be a ban on second jobs. I do think it's possible that there could be a, an hours limit of some kind, although that's fiendishly hard to enforce when you when someone's working at home. Also, it's worth pointing out that um, obviously MPs don't work conventional hours, so they can do quite little at one day and then suddenly work all weekend or work through the evening. So their hours are not the usual office hours. I think it's quite hard to enforce that, but I think you could set some parameters, make them declare them so the public could actually see what they were doing. I, I could easily see that happening. And for me, that would be a better balance. I think an outright ban is probably not the way to go. And I think there are consequences we have to consider about this, one of which is that Everybody who's been a minister and is then pushed out of office or retired to the back benches has an incentive not to hang around in the Commons because they can't do much else. They may take the view, let's see, I'm out of politics now and I'm going to go and get another job. And so you lose quite a lot of the experience. You lose quite a lot of the independence that comes from no longer having conventional political career ambition. So, you know, people may judge it's the right thing to do, but there are consequences to all these actions. And one thing I found, Law, when I spoke to Isabel Hardman, uh, the political journalist who's authored a book, an excellent book called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, that looks about how and why people become MPs and the systems and the and the, the issues within that. She made the very good point that actually there are already two classes of MPs, not just those who have outside interests and don't. There's those who are in marginal seats and those who are in safe seats. Because if you represent, say, an urban marginal seat, you spend any all your time dealing with casework or you're on the campaign trail the whole time. 
And if you're in a safe seat like Sir Geoffrey Cox in Devon, for example, you you don't have to do that much political campaigning outside of an election cycle. Plus, rural constituencies tend to have lower levels of casework there. But I've also picked up a generational divide in the Tory party that lots of the 2019 intake of MPs who represent those red wall seats that are much more marginal, have a very different voter base than traditional Tories. They just feel that their votes would be totally unforgiving of the kind of sums and outside jobs that you see other Tories have. So there's lots of fault lines here. And one thing that seems to have annoyed many Conservative MPs is the fact that Boris Johnson listens a lot to this group known as the old and the bold, which are Eurosceptics, people like Owen Patterson, who were ministers in the past, who now have quite big, healthy outside interest because they're not going back into government, but they quite like still being in parliament. And yes, they probably do bring some experience, as Robert was saying. But really, the future of the Tory party is that younger generation of a very different view on this. It is the divide between a lot of the young Red Bull Tories and the old Spartans, you could see them all. They're all a little bit older and they were gathered around Owen Patterson physically in the chamber when he was going through his vote on whether or not he should be suspended. And those were the MPs that were rallying around him and trying to change the rules because clearly they have a vested interest here. A lot of them do outside work and they want to be able to do that. And this is a conversation that has been going on for years. If you speak to a lot of more senior and experienced former ministers, they really do feel it is their right to earn more money. They argue that if they were to leave politics, they could earn a hell of a lot more than they're on as a backbench MP. And so for them, I think they justify it by saying they they have this expertise, they are doing a public service as an MP, and it's within their right to use their expertise to, to earn a little bit more money because that is what would be within their grasp if they were to leave. And actually, it's a gift to us all that they've decided to stay in the Commons. But it's really interesting. I think the younger ones who really feel the pressure from their constituents, who aren't looking at things on a bigger scale, they're literally looking at what they can do to hold on to their seat in the next election. They are so unhappy right now because they feel mm. the Prime Minister has handled this whole crisis so badly. He looks like a massive hypocrite standing up at COP and telling journalists and the public that MPs found to have broken the rules should face sanctions when we all know that last week he sought to block sanctions for an MP who was found to have broken them. It looks really, really bad. And I think a lot of the public will just see the headlines and think this is sleazy cash for access. Just let's have a ban. Let's end this. And and, and we'll want to keep it simple. And I think there are a lot of backbench MPs who do want to keep it simple. And finally, Robert, to use everyone's favourite phrase here, have we got cut through on this that we saw two opinion polls this week that put the Labour Party ahead of the Conservatives for the first time, I think in over a year. And, you know, this thing obviously tarnishes all of Westminster, all MPs, not just Conservatives. And we should note, obviously, there's been some scrutiny of Sir Keir Starmer for his outside earnings as a lawyer before he became Labour Party leader. In this particular thing, how much of a problem is it for the whole of politics? I think a couple of opinion polls need to be treated with caution. You know, oppositions often have substantial leads all the way through a parliament, certainly by mid middle of a parliament, and then go on to lose an election. So let's just see if, if it stays that way and stabilises with the Conservatives behind. I think it's getting a lot of attention. It can't fail to with the amount of media coverage. But whether it's really 
change in the way people think is harder to say. In general, I've always taken the view that sleaze scandals do not change the public's view of a government, but they reinforce their view if they're beginning to turn against it. So they give them an added reason to turn. I think the bigger political consequence of this is going to be within the Conservative Party. It's going to shake support for Boris Johnson. As we've always said, the support for the Prime Minister among his MPs is wide and shallow rather than deep and principled. They back him because they think he's a winner. If they start to think he's not a winner, and more importantly, if they start to think he's actually a threat to their own livelihoods through his miscalculations, if he hadn't decided to go to the map for Owen Patterson, this would not be happening. So I think the bigger problem is that Tory MPs start to question whether Boris Johnson is really the man they want leading them at this time. And I expect if this stays a major political problem, that the problem will be within the Conservative Parliamentary Party before it is within the country. Robert and Laura, thank you very much. The House of Lords is the one part of the British Constitution that is difficult to defend, yet no one seems particularly willing or able to change. It was half performed by Labour's Tony Blair in the late 1990s, but 92 hereditary peers remain, a temporary solution that has now been in place for two decades. George Parker has been investigating this weird and slightly wonderful world for the FT's Weekend magazine to show how the aristocracy have kept their grip on power and poses the big question about whether any of this will ever change. Well, we do know the Labour Party wants this to change, as Sir Keir Starmer told the BBC quite recently. I've said we need to change the House of Lords. I stand by that. I've asked Gordon Brown to look into exactly what those changes should be. And we'll look at, I think, 15 of the last 16 mega donors and treasurers of the Conservative Party all trooping in um, as peers to the Lords. Okay. Nobody can make the case that we don't need to change. Well, George, that was Keir Starmer talking about the particular instance of Conservative Party treasurers all seemingly automatically getting places within the House of Lords as part of the Sunday Times. That speaks to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast about sleeves. But tell us about the hereditary peers, which I'm sure most people have either forgotten exist and have no idea why they do. Well, exactly. I mean, you mentioned in your introduction there, Seb, that the fact that there are 92 hereditary peers still in the House of Lords was meant to be some sort of temporary solution arising from Tony Blair's half completed reforms back in 1999. And the fact that they're still there is a remarkable story. And I suppose you're a critic of the House of Lords, and most people are, I think, on democratic grounds, an absolute outrage that people are still sitting in the House of Lords by virtue of their birthright. People with, you know, ancestors who were basically came over with the Norman conquerors or were suck-ups to the royal family at some point, are still by birthright sitting in the House of Lords, making laws, being a thorn in the side of an elected government. And what I did for the FT magazine was I went out and just tried to explain how this happened and how they've managed to perpetuate this system as well. And it's a a fascinating story. It took me down to Devon, where I met the Earl of Devon, Charlie Courtney, who's the Earl of Devon, 19th Earl of Devon, uh, lives in Powderham Castle and used to have a tortoise called Timmy, who was 160 years old when he died and discovered rather late in the day was a female tortoise, telling me some amazing stories about ancestors who'd one of whom had been in the tent with Henry V at the Battle of Harfleur, and he had a very close male relationship with Henry V, is what the, uh, the Earl said. So typical sort of stories of the English and British aristocracy in the magazine piece. But at the heart of it is still a question about how on earth did they manage to pull it off, that they're still there in the House of Lords as they have been for centuries. 
Well, Catherine Haddon, it's great to have you on. When you look at George's piece, obviously it's very entertaining and full of lots of colourful figures there that I think obviously seem quite far removed from most people's everyday lives and even the everyday lives of politics there. But is it a problem, do you think, that they still exist? Because the majority of the House of Lords, which is now huge, you know, it's over 800 members now, one of the biggest mm. chambers in the world. These 92 hereditary peers are a part of that, but some might say they're quite harmless. That kind of proves the point because they don't actually contribute a huge amount to the working of the constitution, the working of governments, you know, the success, wherever it might be, of the House of Lords. It's part and parcel of of the problem with the Lords, which is that the debate about House of Lords reform is as much a sort of long-standing tradition in British politics as the arcane nature of the Lords in the first place. And I think the hereditaries really are the sort of the far end of why we need to make reforms to the House of Lords, because there isn't really a good justification for them being there, other than the fact that there was such a dispute, you know, back when Tony Blair made larger reforms to the Lords and the reason why he compromised on keeping them. Now, the question is, is any of this particularly going to change, George? Because obviously there were efforts in the coalition government to reform the House of Lords. The Liberal Democrats wanted an elected chamber and it was scuppered by the Conservatives. Boris Johnson hasn't talked about this, um, although some people I've spoken to at Downing Street said that he is inclined to think about this potentially as a second term thing, as part of his vision for reshaping the country. But as Catherine said, you know, it's much easier to talk about this than actually do it. And the Lords has proved incredibly resilient. You know, as you said, the figures you talked to in your piece have been around and running Britain for literally hundreds of years. Well, the Lords is notoriously difficult to uh, to reform, and um, one of the reasons why Tony Blair didn't carry out his full removal of the hereditary peers was because, in the words of the now Marquis of Salisbury, who was the leader of the Tory group at the time, he threatened them with the, the Somme and Passchendaele if they tried to do that. In other words, to derail a whole load of Tony Blair's and priority legislation. So in the end, Tony Blair came up with this compromise where 92 hereditaries were allowed to sit. And they will continue to sit, by the way, and this is the other part of the magazine piece, Seb, through to a system of by-elections where if one hereditary peer resigns or dies, then the hereditary peers already sitting in the House of Lords will have a, an election, one of the weirdest elections, I think, of any Western democracy, to choose another hereditary peer to take their place. So the system will self-perpetuate. And as you say, nobody really, looking at what happened to Tony Blair's efforts, and then, of course, later efforts by in the coalition government by Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democrat leader, which also fell on stony ground, people look at this and they think, do I really want to get stuck into that quagmire when I've got other things to do? And you mentioned Boris Johnson. Look, I mean, he talks about it being possibly being a second term priority. I'd be surprised if it's even that. You know, people look at this and think, mm, don't fancy that. And then suddenly the hereditary peers are in their place for another 10, 20, 30 years. And that's, I think, one of the astonishing things, Catherine, is that when you look at that deal that was done in the late 90s, and it was the Marquis of Salisbury who went behind the then Conservative leader William Hayes back to do this deal because um, they wanted to oppose getting rid of any hereditary peers. He did this. That's kind of settled as it is there. Do you think it's more likely that the hereditary peers part of it might be reformed? Or have we reached the stage with the House of Lords? It's going to be wholesale constitutional change. I think at this stage, it, it kind of needs to be wholesale constitutional change because honestly, the hereditary peers, are, you know, although they, they do epitomise the sort of worst traits of the Lords, they're not actually the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the size of it 
and you know the way in which it can be used by party leaders to sort of add in extra people the debate about whether or not it's sort of cronyism that you can do certain things and that the lords is a, a reward for you these are all big problems with it and also just fundamentally what we want a second chamber to be doing but also who we want it to be representing i mean you look at where the debate's gone since the late 1990s you know it isn't just the house of lords themselves who are you know resisting doing this they've actually made suggestions for at the moment how to have a sort of degree of reform which was the burns review of a few years ago uh, that put a lot of pressure on prime ministers to try and restrict their numbers put a lot of pressure on lords members themselves to try and uh, get them to retire uh, so they don't keep going to the chamber until they die you know those were starting to have a little bit of an impact under Theresa May she was following through on it but since Boris Johnson's come in, that's kind of just fallen by the wayside and we've seen yet more appointments for it. So the real big problem here is the political parties of both wanting to pack the chamber, you know, and redress what they see as the last government in place, putting more and more of their members in, and also just unable to decide what we want to do. What is the balance between an elected second chamber, appointed second chamber? If it is an elected second chamber, who does it represent? What kind of electoral system? How does that affect the role of the commons? So it's the commons as much as anything else that isn't sure what it wants to do with the House of Lords. Well, George, we should say that obviously to site defence the Lords in, it still does huge amount of work in scrutinising legislation. That that's since the 1911 Parliament Act. That's really what it exists to do, is to go through bills, try and make them better. There's obviously been some feel it's become an obstruction chamber. Nikki DaCosta, who was an aide to Boris Johnson as his legislative advisor, she tweet, put on Twitter quite recently that she felt this is why the Lords need to change, because it's not trying to improve or better legislation to stop the government's priorities. But if you have a look at the recent row we've had about sewage being pumped into British rivers, this whole thing was exposed by the ninth Duke of Wellington, who is featured in your magazine piece. And obviously, I'm sure listeners will be aware of the Duke of Wellington's family heritage and the role that's played in the Battle of Waterloo there. But it does show that the peers still can actually do some good things that can make legislation and better outcomes for the government. Some of the hereditary peers do play an active role. And you mentioned the Duke of Wellington there. The Earl of Devon is a is a barrister specialising in IT and intellectual property and so on. So some of them bring expertise into the chamber. The question is whether they're, they're legitimately there in the first place or not. But yes, I mean, the House of Lords does do some good work. It do, has a lot of experts in it. One of the advantages of the fact it's primarily an appointed chamber is that apart from all the political cronies that inhabit that place, you also have a number of people who really are experts in their fields, whether they're former diplomats or former lawyers, or in, case, in some cases, former actors or athletes. You know, you have people in there who really know what they're talking about. And I think for a long time, that's been seen as quite a good part of the House of Lords, that they have an expertise in there. And you go to some of the House of Lords select committees and you realise there's some really expert people in there bringing expertise to bear on the nitty gritty of detailed legislation. And I think, you know, doing away with the appointed element of the House of Lords altogether might be a mistake because you'd lose some of that expertise. But I agree with Catherine, some sort of wholesale reform and a massive slimming down of the House of Lords is badly needed. 
I was going to ask you, Catherine, that then leads to the question you have to ask everyone who's involved in Westminster is, what would be your plan for making or replacing the House of Lords? Because, of course, one of the points that George's article makes is anything you do cannot challenge the supremacy of the Commons as the key legislative body, because if it does, it would just never be accepted by MPs and opens up a whole other way of constitutional issues. Most of it seems to be coalescing around the idea that we can learn from other countries and have some kind of... Um, Senate or some kind of upper chamber that reflects regions in a different way, that it's politically balanced. So perhaps it reflects the share of the vote. So again, it, it, it depends on a, a different voting system rather than maybe electing members to the Lords directly. You allow the parties to appoint people depending upon that share of a vote. That would have the benefits in theory of making sure that we still had experts who are appointed to it. Obviously, it still risks some of the issues that you've got with the House of Lords today. So it, it depends on whether or not parties then do change their behaviour and, and do appoint people on the basis of, of their expertise. I think that's kind of where it's sort of ending up. But the problem is, as soon as you get into sort of intricacies of that, that's when the parties start to look at it in terms of how that would affect them. The Liberal Democrats, I mean, they are obviously in favour of, of House of Lords reform. Nick Clegg did try to make this push back in, in the coalition government years. But they at the moment have a you know, massive number of House of, of Lords representatives compared to the, their share of the vote at the last election. So they are one of the parties who might not benefit so much if it was changed. So it kind of does still need a little bit of thought. But the problem is we have been debating this for 20 years. And at some point, we've just got to try something. I agree with that. And my general view on this, I've mentioned in my book that came out recently, is essentially to look at some kind of Senate that would have legislative experts as one element of it. So people would be appointed on, say, a maximum of two tenure terms who would bring in that kind of expertise George has talked about, combined with representatives of England's directly elected mayors and the devolved parliaments. And obviously the whole thing is very tricky and you need to think about it very carefully. But for you, George, what would be your way of doing this? Or having, having met all these curious figures, do you think it should just be kept as it is because they're not doing that much harm? I don't think anyone can justify it remaining as it is. I don't think you can justify having a, a, a chamber in a modern democracy inhabited by people who are there purely on birthrights. I don't think anyone would accept that. And in fact, quite a few of the hereditary peers say that, of course, they're only keeping doing their job until a fully reformed House of Lords comes along. I, I think I'd agree with you, Seb. I think a combination of a, a Senate element representing the constituent parts of the United Kingdom and some of the big cities on time-limited terms of office coupled with the best of the appointed members of the House of Lords currently there, I think some sort of mixture would be about right. I do strongly take the view of Jacob Rees-Mogg on this, actually, that the more legitimate the House of Lords appears to be, the more it challenges the House of Commons and the bigger the danger of parliamentary gridlock on the US style. I really think the public don't want that. I don't think they want the House of Lords to become a rival to the House of Commons in terms of its power. So I think an element of illegitimacy, I think, is probably a good thing but I think a sort of blend of the kind you were just talking about there is probably the way to go. Well, there you have it. We've solved the House of Laws problems. We just need someone to actually go and do it now. George and Kath, thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon, the sound engineers of Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.